I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. I want to remind people that we're talking about a mystery. Yeah, we, we treat love like we should know how to do it and how to do it well. But love is the most mysterious thing above all. We all want it. We all crave it. We look for it. We're designed in families to get it, to nurture. And then here we are thinking, what is love again? Mm, Right. This is why one of my favorite quotes on this topic says that love is a conspiracy in search of a crime. And I think that's true, right? To some extent, we don't think about love until something goes wrong. And then all of a sudden, all eyes are on it. Like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And we're talking about romantic love in this context. But love has its fingerprints from the time we are uh, an inception on this planet right? We're trying to make sense of what is love? How do I feel it and experience it? How do I replicate it? It's a life's work. And so we see that problems happen in people's lives because we don't know how to be loving to ourselves and to others and to accept. And so we find ourselves at the scene of a crime where love was ruptured, where mistakes were made, where we didn't know ourselves, when we didn't know another, and we repeated things in our lives that really caused us to stumble, trip, and quite frankly, fall on our face. The suspects that we've talked about so far as we've tried to unravel this knot, as we've tried to understand the relationship in question and the rupture in question, have, um, have really grabbed attention I think um, people who have responded to us have said, oh my God, talking about family of origin, I I couldn't believe how much that has impacted uh, our relationship. And I've never even thought of it before. Or wow, why why didn't I even consider the fact that how I showed up in previous relationships was patternistic? But we can begin to see right there how all of these things come together And it's a little, um, dare I say, disillusioning because we do approach love with a kind of, mm, well, I think an illusionary quality where we go, oh, wow, it just mm, feels this way and that. But But actually, even though we would say it's a mystery, it's a mystery that in fact can be solved. We just have to have the right tools and to know what we're peering in on. We get in cycles and these cycles happen over time and we don't see them. We don't have perspective. It becomes natural to us. We become reactive in the world. And so we don't really have the right lens to look in on how to change what's going on. Right. This is the the beautiful uh, reality that consciousness, turning the lights on, enables you to change the furniture, right? You know, if you're in a dark house with the blinds drawn and all the lights off um, and you want to shuffle around the furniture, well, you're in for a real challenge. A lot of us find ourselves in that place where we feel as though the floor has fallen out on us, that we're, you know, up against the wall. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what to look for. And our eyes are closed. Uh, that really is how a lot of us have approached love, right? I really love this idea that we're all doing the best that we can or else we would do differently. It's the most generous way to look at the world. Sometimes people will say, oh, why are they doing it this way? It's so frustrating. But to say, you know what? If they had the skill, if they had the vision and the ability, they would do different. And we all have that within ourselves, that ability to try something new when we know different. Right. This is uh, a dialectic 
of acceptance and change. I can accept the reality that you and I and, and the world at large are doing the best that we can and have certainly done that or else, as you said, we would have done differently, undoubtedly. I mean, you can play that scenario out, you know, like, well, I, I knew better, but I just didn't. Okay. Did you not have the resources? Did you not have the stamina in that moment? Did you not have the motivation? Did you not have the desire? Um, and what were the causes behind that? There's always causes, you see. So we are always doing the best that we can. That is undoubted. So that's one side of the dialectic. The other side is, and we're going to have to do better, try harder, do more if we wish to achieve our goals. And in this case, the goal is to have a thriving, healthy relationship. Yeah. If we want different outcomes, then we have to lean into new possibilities. If we don't want to keep stubbing our toe or having relationships in front of us dismantle, if we want to regulate our emotions or handle conflict, we have to be willing to step into something different. And so I think that's where we found ourselves in a posture of, I was doing the best I can and this is not working. We have to do better because we keep hurting one another and hurting ourselves. And we really stepped into that and created new possibility with new information, seeing ourselves from a different what perspective. This is why I love this vision or this view of love and romance as a mystery that is solvable. It, it really is like a detective story because you actually can look at it with a view to investigate. You really can look at it and identify the pieces, identify the parts begin to shine the light of consciousness on it. And that enables you to make new and different choices. I think before um, the idea is so overwhelming, like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Oh, you know, the best I can do is, you know, when I know that we're done, we can go see a, a marriage and family therapist. Note that most couples therapists feel like they're hospice workers, right? Often, you know, when a couple comes to them, it's like, ah, we're almost done. Yeah. They come in a crisis mode and that's a difficult place to bounce back from when they walk in the door thinking this is dead. Do you have anything that we can use to resuscitate it? And so wanting to look at the possibilities versus like putting something into the ground and burying it. That's the difference. Right, right. And the protocol is the same either way. At some point in time, you're going to have to look at the threads that have brought you here and begin to see, well, what's the, what's the chain of events? What are the causatives? Because uh, like dominoes, they begin to topple over in our life. So if we can begin to identify them, we can begin to apply skillful means to each one of those different things. And that brings significant change. And desire to do that. I think one of the big um, things that happens is we have to collectively take responsibility. So if I'm just in a place of blame and just in a place of, I'm going to say on my end, victimhood because something happened to me, then I become paralyzed in order to see how and who I am in the world. So the desire is, is that it's bigger than you and I. I have to look at who I am in relationship so I can take responsibility. That desire is so important than to blame and point a finger. So I think I just needed to say that because it gives equal responsibility in relating uh, that allows for change and to see those cycles. Again, to return to our... <laughs> fragile and rather simple analogy of a whodunit murder mystery. Well, if you think about the, the, the movie Clue, strangely, one of our daughter's favorite movies after I introduced that. She loves that movie. It's kind of goofy and campy from the 80s and based off of the board game. But it's a really hilarious take on this murder mystery set in the 1950s, I think, or maybe it's the early 60s. And someone dies. In fact, uh, who dies is a, is a person named Mr. Body, <laughs> the body. And they find him. And the end of the movie, they play through all these different possible scenarios of, of who the real killer is. But what I love about each one of those scenarios is, you know, 
the victim there, Mr. Body, he's not a neutral participant. You know, at one point he faked his own death. You know, another point he was blackmailing them all. Um, there is a complicity. And when you approach a mystery, one of the things you realize is everybody's in on it, right? There, there's something in this. They're all interwoven. They, they may not all be the murderer. They may not all have, have swung the ax or, or whatnot, but there is an interrelationship between all of these parts. They're all impacting the other. Um, you can see that a lot easier if you're not in the middle of it, for sure. There is something that you told me once. You said, no one is the villain in their own story. <laughs> right. And so this idea that we can kind of hold our cards close to our chest and say it's someone else's fault. Even if I have hurt someone or done wrong, this really interesting concept that it's easier to blame and to see other people's flaws than to look inward and say, uh, what do I need to change to go forward? And that goes for all parties involved. We have to change that mind, um, that thought that our mind has, that we are the villain, actually, that we are causing ourselves to stumble along the way, unless I'm really willing to look at it. And so, um, I just think that's such an interesting perspective is that we're all involved somehow. Are we willing to take a look? And just like none of us are really the villains in our own story, we're almost always the hero. You know, even if part of that heroic story is the guy who's been sabotaging his life, but is, is working really hard to get it back together. Well, that's a heroic story still. You know, sometimes I hear people say, oh no, I am the villain in my story. I'm the guy who's always screwing up. And I, and I go, yeah, you're still the hero in that telling. You get that, right? Like you're the, you're the guy who, gosh, he just needs a break. He just needs a mentor. He just needs a healer. He just needs a, a second chance. And then, you know, with the coach puts you in the game, you'll make the winning pass. That's still a heroic story. Um, we almost always see ourselves in the light of a certain kind of generosity. I think that's good. I really do. Uh, I think actually generosity should be our approach not only to ourselves, but to others. Again, going back to that dialectic, we are undoubtedly doing the best that we can. By taking um, a wide lens vision of this idea of a mystery of love, Whatever your posture is in relationship, we can begin to, to unwind those knots and see what's actually happening in front of us and begin to work on those individual aspects. This doesn't have to be something you wait until there's a crisis to figure out. You actually don't need the floor to fall out from under you in order to unravel the mystery of love. You can also begin to engage this actually so that you can make changes that you want to become an extraordinary relationship. Take good and make it great, right? You actually just need to know the DNA that you're working with. Becoming awake in our own lives is something that is coming to my mind as you're talking through that is oftentimes we just are asleep and waking up to how we're behaving and who we are and the patterns that we have how they impact us and others. That's hard. And I think I'm speaking from someone uh, uh, that, that had a hard time waking up and taking responsibility and seeing the impact because one of the um, kind of thought processes that I have is like, everything needs to be fine. I'm fine. And that is how I approach most things is I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. We're going to get through this without really waking up to what is underneath the surface. I'm four years old, maybe five, and my father is gone on yet another trip. I felt like I saw him so little. I remember crawling up onto the bed to be near my mother and looking up into her eyes, sad, smoky eyes, perhaps even fresh with tears, and saying, I like you better than dad. It was important for me to tell her that. I felt like she needed me to say that. She needed to be taken care of. 
like that, she looked at me and smiled and said, you should never say that. But I wasn't confused. When the words and the body say two different things, often we trust the body. I knew the smile meant she liked that. Later, when my father came back from his trip, he brought me a toy rifle. All the friends were over on the back porch eating nachos and hot dogs. And I took the toy gun that he had given me, this Winchester rifle replica, and I promptly walked to the center of the backyard where everyone could see me, and I took it by the barrel, and I began to hit it, to hit the stock on the ground, over and over and over. And the family friends stopped their eating, and they looked out at me, and my father stopped and looked at me, and he stood up, and I remember him whistling at first that shrill, high-pitched whistle to get my attention, and I kept going until the gun now was broken in two, and I kept going, and now the wooden stock is splitting, and he yells, what are you doing? And I don't answer, but I know what I'm doing. I'm showing my mother that he can't buy my affection either. That I do not appreciate his absence because she did not appreciate his absence. And I am her protector and she can count on me. Whoa. We really desire love and affection and attention. And when I hear that story, my heart breaks because what you really wanted was that love and attention, really time where you felt your father. And also you were torn between aligning with your mother, who you spent most of your days with and were really attuned to her emotions. Yeah. You know, when we think of the roles that we adopt in early childhood that we begin to play out and continue on much later into adulthood and later our own families and relationships, they start as the solution to a problem. And most often the problem occurs in the, in the way of kind of a formula, which is who do I have to be in order to make it work? Who do I have to be in order to keep the family together? And in this case, that young child version of myself knew something. And that was the pain of my mother. Coming back to something we already talked about was doing the best you can. And I think that as we talk, you and I are very generous about as kids, we're doing the best we can. And as parents, we're doing the best we can, or we would do differently. And what we don't know, and we talked a little bit about it in family origins, like our parents are replicating the things that they felt and experienced the generation before, all right? Absences. And uh, I know from your family of origin experience, your mother's father was gone and your father's father was gone. And here you are a generation later, your father's gone. And so your mom with the skills that she has doing the best she can but she's torn in two worlds. And here you are holding that tension. I'm going to use this word again, doing the best that you can, trying to be a good son, adapting to what your world needed. And you were also quite a bit younger than your siblings. So you spent a lot of time by yourself alone with your mom. And so again, being this very emotionally sensitive child that you were, you're picking up on all of it. You're picking on on the divisiveness, right? Of that parent being gone and holding everything together. And you want to make everything okay. You want to make people smile. You want to be strong. And you're 
this really young boy trying to do that? Yeah. Sometimes when I think of these early scenarios, one of the things that really occurs to me is that um, we often parent away from the places and the ways we ourselves were parented. And so you're talking about this familial pattern of absence. And so I think sometimes that my mother raised me to be the kind of man she had never met. I would be the son who stayed. I would be the son who took care of her. I would attune to her. I would be tender in ways that no man she had yet encountered was. Uh, That I would be to her uh, that thing that had been so glaringly uh, absent in her world. Um, And in a way, the roles then that I would take on, the parts I would learn to play, would be conditioned by her need. So you become what when you see your mom unhappy? I become her caregiver. Mm. I become the shoulder to cry on. I become the person who knows just what to say to make her feel right. And also there's this element of strength that's also being asked of you as well. So there's this emotional availability when you're young, but also an element of strength that's asked of you to be present. And what's it in relationship to? I think that's also another interesting aspect of these early patterns that that you see when you begin to look back on it. It wasn't just that I was strong. It was that I was strong in relationship to someone who was terribly conflicted. Conflicted in the sense that uh, I was providing their emotional need, but the person who is, in fact, her lover, her husband, is gone. Uh, I imagine that was conflicting. And in that moment, I think that memory characterizes this, where on one hand, she says, no, 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 Um, you shouldn't say this to me. You shouldn't favor me above your father. But on the other hand, she liked it. And so this really began a pattern in my life right? To provide strength and stability for emotionally unavailable or relationally unavailable and ambivalent characters. So you saw what happened early childhood. You saw this playing out later when you got into romantic relationships with women. (laughs) I like to say that there has not been a form of availability that I haven't been attracted to. And the more unavailable, the better. Emotionally unavailable? Great. Check that box. That's fantastic. Relationally unavailable? Like you're with someone else? Oh, wonderful. Sign me up. Oh, I'm with someone else too. I, I'm also unavailable? Okay, great. Let's add to it. Oh, you're in a different country. Fantastic. A different side of the world. Even better. We can only talk every so often. Oh my gosh. How much I have loved unavailability. But you dial that back. The blueprint was set pretty early on, right? It was set so early on that the role was, I will be strong, stalwart, caring, and available to that which is not available to me. Yeah. And you have this perception that you can show up in that way, providing that, but also there's a limit to it right? You can be magnanimous in that moment. You can be generous in that place. And then what happens? What happens when you are available to unavailability? Well, at the end of that story, frustration, right? Um, The things that I'm given to enjoy, I actually can't enjoy anymore. The relationships that now I crave, now I want are poisoned. They're soured. And, uh, and so by showing up in that way, by that role, I certainly upheld my agreements in childhood. I became the role that was necessary for me. But even then, it didn't play out like I imagined it would. And of course, that is the key to these familial roles that we adopt, that we continue to play out uh, in life, that while we may be very, very successful at them, they have diminishing returns. Yeah, they become our superpowers. The thing that we hone when we're young because of the environment that we live in. Now, no one is so special that they don't have this happen, right? So 
everybody experiences this. It can come from a very traumatic childhood. It can come from a very stable childhood. We all rise to the challenge of looking at our environment and figuring out what is my role here and how do I show up? How can I be seen? How can I not be seen? How do I get attention? How do I, oh gosh, I don't want attention in this family. And so those things show up. Now, they become what I said before was this superpower. You became really emotionally attentive, available, strong. Like these show up great in relationship. They feel good. I will tell you from a person who has felt them from you, they feel amazing, right? They feel so amazing. And they're also, like, they're, like you said, there was a limitation. It blocked you, right, from intimacy in the real because, because it caused that frustration in you. And the, the reason why I think it's important to use this word roles is because it's actually not you. It's the part you're playing. It's the part you're playing because you think that's what people need. And early on, it worked or there was the, the hint that it would work. And so you continue to replicate that play. You continue to play that part. This is very similar to personality development in general, but, but I think relational development works the same way. You know, I had a friend uh, who went to classic acting school uh, in Los Angeles and did one of those, you know, prolonged seminars. He learned, I, I can't remember the number, but I think it was like 150 different roles. So think about this. He learned how to play the butler. He learned how to play the, um, the bastard son. He learned how to play the grieving father. He learned how, I mean, he learned literally there was a specific role for all these different things. And they came with certain facial tics and body postures and, you know, to show mastery at the end of this particular training program, you had to master, you know, all 150 different parts. It wasn't that each part had its own dialogue. It was that it literally became physically both facially and then from a posture standpoint, you were able to adopt that role. Now, take that further. Imagine that he gets cast in a movie. He's the butler and he's really great at it. Oh, he was so good at, at you know, adopting a certain kind of affect. His face contorts to a certain thing. He has this great posture. And when you look at him, you just go, oh my God, this guy's a natural butler. Wow. So imagine that he gets cast as that role again. And again, and again, he sees great success as butlers in all these different movies. He's the Michael Caine, right, of a new generation. He is Alfred. He's a great butler. But eventually, he forgets his capacity to play those other parts. He forgets that he has immense capacity. He's winnowed down 150 different possibilities into one role, and it's limited his ability to perform, to achieve. That is really how most of us occur in life, that we have these immense capacities, but because we're very successful at a few things, we keep replicating that role over and over and over until we think it's us. Oh, that is so good. We become so honed in on that role that we believe that's the only thing that we have. We don't even see it anymore. That idea of pulling back the perspective. I know that when you and I work with couples, they don't see it. Just like we didn't see it. Like, why are we stuck? Why do we do the things that we do? Because we don't see that it's a role. It's something that we put on at an early age and just kept honing it in over and over. It became our craft. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this is this implicit and explicit kind of expectation. Now, if you're lucky, maybe your family of origin said, no, this is what we do here. This is how we behave and you behave. So at least you know the rules. <laughs> right. Most times, how we understand our role is an implicit expectation. Go to the story of your mom and dad and that. It was implicit. He didn't tell you, you need to be this for me, or this is your job to attend to my emotions. You saw the environment and you knew what you needed to do. 
So a lot of times that's why roles sneak up on people. It's because no one said you need to be this. I can remember locking myself in a bathroom to cry when I was young. No one told me emotions are this or that. This is how you handle your emotions. I read the room. I didn't see it. I locked the door and I cried. Not because someone said this is how you handle your emotions. So it happens over time. And oftentimes we don't see that that was the demand that we thought was needed for us to perform. Right. We're being summoned whether we agree to it or not. That implicit agreement is given. This is what you need to do to to meet the challenge ahead. And then we continue to play those things out over and over and over. It becomes how we occur in relationship. I'm curious, what are some examples of roles that we see in the individuals we've worked with or, or maybe at large? What, what are some of the examples of roles that, that, that people have, have shown up as in relationship? I think keeping it together is a really big role. Like I keep things together. I'm the stoic. I'm the stoic. Um, not having problems right? Mm -hmm. I minimize the problems in this family by becoming minimal. Mm, Yeah. I shrink. I shrink. Yeah, definitely. That's one. I'm having too much emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Someone that family members can't handle. Well, I'm just the emotional one or I'm just the empath or people don't get me. How could that be a role that anyone would be asked to play? How could that be a part? Isn't that just who someone is? Well, I think that's how we begin to think we are, but it's called validation over time. Um, There's a cost when we feel invalidated. So a child looking for validation, they won't have to get big. They won't have to get large because they feel seen and heard. So someone over time that's invalidated with their thoughts, their experiences, their emotions, um, there's a cost to that. We usually see it in behaviors and emotions that peek their head out. Right. That they actually learn in their family of origin that in order to uh, be seen, in order to be heard, in order to have their needs met, which by the way, is a part of a functional family system. In order to have my needs met, the thing that I need to do is I need to become overwhelming actually. And so that's how I show up in the room. And you'll be seen. And then you'll be seen. And then that will keep the family together. I'm doing my job. Yeah. I'm not a small portion of this family. Other roles I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, and I think sometimes it, it almost becomes archetypal, right? I described becoming a caretaker, becoming a rescuer. I think there's also, you know, the the good son that kind of is is one. I, I think the the damsel in distress we've kind of just just talked about, the scapegoat, another important family role. You know, the family is great. Everyone's a high achiever. And then there's Bob, that black sheep of the family, right? Well, well, what's that role about? Why does he need to play that part? I often think that role kind of holds the shadow elements of the family, the things that they can't see or acknowledge because we want to be a family that looks good on the outside, but no family is perfect. And so it's a way that the family can hold their shadows, right? And so usually someone who steps outside of family rules becomes that thing. It's a way of also having a sense of identity outside of the family, but it becomes so painful for the family to see that they're not perfect or they don't have it all together, right? And so here's an example of that. The thing that we try to hide, we can see. There's the achiever, the, the one who accomplishes things, right? The one who gets it done, the one who's willing to step up to the plate. We see that one often, right? Yeah. And some people might be thinking, well, what are bad with some of these things, right? With some of these roles, like achieving, that seems great. Why would we talk about achieving not being something that would be a great role? Well, this has nothing to do with good or bad. Right. This actually has to do with being locked into a part that you have to play over and over and over. And eventually it becomes not only inauthentic to who you are, it stymies who you are. You stop accessing, remember those 149 other character adaptations you had access to? 
This isn't about good or bad. I mean, achieving can be a really great thing until actually maybe you don't need to. Maybe you need to rest. Maybe the thing you need to do is enjoy the family vacation, but you can't because well, what I do is I, I go nonstop. That, that, that's what I do. You know, I've had so many men across the years who have come to me and said, gosh, what I really need to do is spend more time with my family. I really need to enjoy, you know, being with my loved ones, but I can't because I'm the one who has to provide. So they're off on vacation like they go every year and I'm here at the office working. Well, that's an addiction to a role. Yeah. I'm thinking of roles like the enthusiast or a chameleon, right? Or the workhorse like you're talking about or the victim in a family. There's lots of roles. It's hard to change it. Right. Success is addictive. And the more successful we are at playing those parts, the more identified we become with them, the more we think this is me, the more successful we are and the less likely we are of stretching out of that. Um, It takes an awful lot of work to not be in that role. In fact, sometimes it leaves you feeling like I'm doing something wrong. I'm not okay if you drop the role. When I started playing basketball, it was all about fun. And... If I'm honest, it was because that's what people in our family did. We played basketball. My older brothers, my dad, so I did too. And there I was, a junior in college, a full-ride scholarship to play basketball. And the game had left me in tears. It wasn't fun anymore. I had lost the passion for it. And every time I thought about doing it, I just had dread. There was nothing I could do to escape where I was at. So I picked up the phone and I called my parents. They love coming to games. My childhood had been based on going to games, my mom, the rowdiest rooter of all of them, braiding hair and long car rides and plane rides to cheer me on. It was part of how we did life. There wasn't too many reasons why we skipped church, but basketball was one of them. And then I stopped loving it. So I picked up the phone to talk to my parents. I was trying to tell them that I was done playing, that I was tired, that it wasn't enjoyable anymore. It was risky. I felt the weight of it. And my family, it was important. at the end of the phone conversation. It actually was what I feared. They weren't okay with it. If I chose not to play anymore, the debt of my college experience was now on me. Book closed. I was on my own. No support. I think what's fascinating about this particular story is it's not so much about basketball or athleticism. It's about the ways that we are reinforced for playing certain parts in our family stories. And then what happens when we let them go? We're no longer reinforced. In fact, we're often punished for it. Yeah, I just realized recently that um, my parents were going through a bunch of my old stuff from college and high school. And they had like 10, 12 boxes of paraphernalia, trophies and cutouts of newspapers, pictures. And, and one of the newspaper clippings, it was me with a couple of my friends and we were all super overachievers. It was like, born, she does. But it was like, I looked at that and I was like, oh my gosh. 
Like it was like, I was mentoring kids. I was coaching young kids. I was like a three sport athlete. Like (laughs) it was wild, but I was reinforced for that. And the idea was that that was one of the roles. Like we talked about before. It's not that those things weren't good. It was, that's how I knew to be in my family. And I stepped outside of that when I said, I don't like this anymore. It doesn't feel good. It's not bringing me joy. And when I did, I felt the weight of disapproval, of sadness. And it was crushing to me. It really rocked my identity. Right. And, and here it's, it's interesting because, you know, we might say, oh, well, gosh, this is about playing sports. But of course, there's some underlying threads here. You know, you said you've got three older brothers, they're competitors, they're people who have played the games. One of the things that you've shared with me before is you were raised to be one of the wolves, right? You're the only girl in a family of boys, athletes, competitors, um, stars. And here you are. The expectation is that's how you'll show up too. The, the part that you played in your family is she who runs with wolves, right? Oh, yes. And I worked very hard to be a wolf. I did not like it not to be part of the group. Uh, Getting my period was super traumatic for me. When menstruation happened, I was in sixth grade. And that was the most devastating part of my life at that moment because it meant that I wasn't the same as the others. As your brothers. As my brothers. I think about that now. I'm like, oh, look at you. But I was so angry because it was a dividing line in the sand that I was different. Yeah. And so, you know, skip ahead now, several years, you decide to forego playing this sport that your brothers had played. Guess what? Sign number two, I'm different. I'm not like them. And this time, well, they weren't going to reinforce that. Yeah. And there there also was a price tag to it too. There's this price tag that says, when you don't do this, you won't have money to go to school. Right. So I was making a very big decision saying, in some ways, rebelling against that expectation. And I felt the weight of it. I felt the disapproval. I felt that, oh, when you do something outside of this family structure, there are consequences. That is usually how this mechanism works. That when you step outside of the part that you're playing, for instance, when you stop being the caretaker to unavailability, or in this case, when you stop performing uh, in athleticism or, or continuing the family tradition, for instance, the line gets snapped. They begin to go, okay, okay, that this isn't going to work for us. You know, sometimes you actually even see this with um, addictions, right? So let's just say that someone's an alcoholic and, you know, no one in that family system thinks that's a great thing. In fact, they've been telling, I'll use Bob again. They've been telling Bob for years, you need to stop drinking. Well, then Bob does. Bob stops drinking. But actually, Bob has been a scapegoat and that's been his role for many, many years. And now certain things begin to line up for Bob differently. He's, he's behaving in new ways. He has new goals, new dreams. And then all of a sudden, his family members are saying things like, dad, you've changed. I don't even like being around you anymore. You won't go to the parties. You won't, or whatever those things are. So I think sometimes the people who are least hospitable to us adopting new roles or beginning to step into places that work for us are those who are most familiar with those old parts that we played. Everyone's identity is attached. I think you, I hear you saying that. One of the activities I do when I teach grad students about family of origin and how they work together in roles is that I have them all hold on to a piece of string and pretty soon it looks like a, a spider web, right? And then I have one member of that group like stand on a chair or move or change positions. And you notice that there's tension and there's pull on every other single participant. Because when one person changes in a family of origin, if you decide you don't want that role anymore, I don't want to be the caretaker, let's say, of other people's emotions. Or for me, I want to have a sense of self. It's not just how I belong to this, 
Belonging is important, but a sense of self and making those decisions, well, that is entirely important. Then everyone, their sense of identity really struggles as well. When you change, how does that impact me? And that really frightens people when change happens. This is um, a huge principle in familial roles and in romantic roles, right? Because again, we've learned how to play these parts for a long time. I'm going to caretake your emotions or you're going to, you know, continue to, to keep things together, whatever those things are, whatever those roles might be. I do actually remember an exchange between us, right? Where um, one of the ways I had been caretaking you emotionally was um, was either by avoiding hard conversations or um, or or really uh, sometimes I would share something hard and then I'd, I'd really back off. I wouldn't be able to hold it, right? Great sign of codependency and enmeshment. Um, but as I began to change how I showed up in terms of that old family role that I had known for so long how to play, as I began to shed that, it made conversations much harder to get through. And we had to work with new roles. I wasn't going to caretake anymore. Yeah. And in that particular set of exchanges, right? Like I had to show up as a complete self, right? Because my desire for belonging is so strong, right? I can play all the roles and I can perform them really well. But when you change, then I'm called to change too. My ways of being in the world aren't working either. And so there was a strain on our relationship when, let's say, you could be honest or say you weren't happy or in this situation where we're talking about infidelity, it's like, ooh, we're cracking something open and saying something is not working. Yeah, I think for anyone who has played a a chameleon role or a caretaker role or a helper role across the years, maybe they've been the nice guy if if they're a, a male. Maybe they've been you know the 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 warm hearted, tender, mothering type or or helper. Whatever that is, when they begin to shed that role, inevitably they feel like an asshole or a bitch. I mean, those are oftentimes the terms that I hear, you know, someone says, oh, I just feel like a bitch or, oh, I I feel like such an asshole now. You know, when you look at the behaviors that they're displaying, you're not an asshole for saying, I don't want to go to the party. (laughs) You're not a bitch for saying, no, that's not welcome attention, but it feels that way. And it feels that way because across a lifetime, we've cultivated a certain way of being. We've cultivated a certain way where people now think that, you know, we don't have boundaries. And so now if you begin to adopt a new role, which involves boundaries, oh, it feels bad for you, feels bad for everybody around you. The great news is they'll get used to it. <laughs> and if they don't, well, they'll leave and you'll find new people who will acclimate to the new you. <laughs> it works. There is a cost. There is a cost to change. Is something that you're really talking about. When we step into new places, it's going to feel unfamiliar for everybody. And you're going to find more than one role. You're going to find that you're multifaceted. You can do more than just keep it together. You can do more than just achieve. You can do more, right, than um, going after things that are unavailable to you. You can start to have a sense of self that is expansive and creative and multidimensional. It takes work for everyone involved. Yeah. Breaking that addiction is key. And that's, That's the way of thinking about it. It's that we become addicted to these identities. They own us. Of course, as you break free of those roles that are smothering your multidimensional, multifaceted capacities, the great news is you always have access to those things still, right? Like I I didn't lose the ability to take care of people. I didn't lose the ability to attune relationally. I just don't always have to do it. Sometimes I can actually have self-respect and stand up for my values or tell the truth or 
be an authentic person. In fact, hopefully all the time. Uh, and, and I think that you augment, you have access to all those parts. And now with more besides. That's a really, really beautiful way to put it is that you have access to it, but it also doesn't own you anymore. Sometimes people are so keenly adept at their role. That's all they're able to do. And we get to outgrow those places. We get to become more than that and incorporate it in a healthy way versus a reactive or responsive way to our environment. So today we've been talking about, obviously, roles. We've been talking about roles that start uh, when we're very, very young in families of origin and continue to play out across a lifetime, often showing up in, in romantic relationships, but really almost every relationship that we have. Um, these roles own us. They push us around. They often use our experiences, our thoughts, our memories, our events of life to play out the drama that is inherent in them the point where we feel like we're victimized by life. I didn't make that decision. That moment made the decision for me. What we're talking about is a place of profound freedom. And that is inherently relational because relationship is built when two people are able to choose one another. So much of relationship is not two people who are choosing one another, but two people who are forced together almost by the winds of circumstance and fate and other people's choices and consequences. By liberating yourself from these roles of the past, you're actually enabling yourself to fall in love with the real them and they with the real you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Oh. Line. <laughs>